So it might have been the longest period I've had in a while without actually drinking wine. And I don't know if that's sad or what. What do you mean? Well, I mean, we were in South Padre from Thursday to Sunday. And my liver still hurts. But none of it was from wine. <laughs> it was from, went to this bar, Louise, that had hurricanes. Oh, God. And it's this big ass, like, plastic cup. The kind that, like, everyone has in their pantry from when they went to college. Yeah. Um, filled with, I don't know, like, seven different liquors. And that's the mystery. And, yeah. And it was $13. <laughs> and then... For one of, I had two because of course I did. Oh my um, god! And on my second one, I tipped the bartender. Like I just gave him a twenty because um, I'd also kind of tipped shittily on the first one because I wasn't expecting it to be cash only. So oh. I gave him twenty. And then when I was like, oh, keep all of it, he like grabbed what I think was vodka and just poured another shot on top. And I was like, oh, yay, my poor stomach. It was also <laughs> oh the god. sweetest thing ever. I mean, it was amazing. It was yeah. like fruit punch flavored but oh my god also, so you basically had just like an alcohol like suicide you remember when you used to like go to oh, the water to the yeah get, soda like, fountain Dutch pepper coke Sprite, yeah you'd mix icy, everything orange. yeah <laughs> you basically had the adult version of that yeah pretty much but then <laughs> normally when we were at the house i just bought a big handle of tito's vodka and both some pina colada mix and yeah. some aloe waters and just drank on that Wait, and then once I had a vodka Gatorade, with aloe water? It was really good. I mean, the texture is a lot when you get to the bottom of your drink and you're like, well, I'm feeling, oh, chunks. Ew, but... aloe water has chunks? Yeah, it's chunks of aloe. I, I mean, I've never had it. Uh... So the texture is similar. If you've ever had, like, if you've ever gone to a bubble tea place and gotten, like, jelly tea. So, you know, you get, like, a fruity tea and it has little jellies at the bottom. It's kind of like that. Yeah, like the little, like, boba ball things or whatever. The... Yeah, but not the not nearly that big, and oh, boba's kind of gross. Oh, I love those. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> well. Well. Um. Hi everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany, and I'm Tyler, and my liver is still recovering, so this is going to be fun. But you know what? We will persevere. We. I'm fine. Uh. You I also will definitely last for the night podcast. had like four glasses of wine. Oh, I definitely had a bottle of wine we last were at night. A so pride event, and I was like, "Yay, free wine!" Yeah, I was um, watching Sex in the City. Oh, and I was watching a documentary <laughs> and bawling my eyes out in front of two hundred people. So it's fine. We had very different nights because I drink a bottle of wine while watching Sex in the City and doing research for today. <laughs> Yay! Well, with that. Don't forget to check out our Patreon. It's where we post all of our murder minis every other week. And these are just smaller episodes sometimes. Sometimes they're about the same length. But go check those out. They're for Patreon only. Uh, We just do a whole different smattering of cases. And there's literally like 23 of them right now. So if you're all caught up and you're sad and you need more content, definitely hop on over to Patreon. We've got a lot of different levels. All of them come with different rewards for you from, you know, like handwritten thank you notes, getting to direct an episode, and all of them you get access to the murder minis. 
Also, let us know if you are a wine lover. I know our murder minis are, they're usually shorter episodes that we focus just on these crimes. So we don't intro a wine. We're usually still finishing off the last bits of the bottle from the <laughs> episode whatever. before. <laughs> yeah. But if you would be interested in us doing, you know, posting some random wine reviews of wines we have out in the wild, I guess. Like, in in life. <laughs> in life. Um, let us know if that'd be something that the wine lovers of y'all would be interested in. I really like that. That'd be awesome. Kind of like we do on Instagram, which we haven't done one of those in a while. A, like we a, haven't. A rogue wine review. But I think we should. And on Patreon, we could do like a long ass review. Yeah, we really could. While you're checking out our Patreon, also make sure to subscribe to us on your podcast listening platform of choice. Uh, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, which, even though iTunes is going away, or may have already gone away by now, Apple Podcasts is not. So yes, we'll we're still, still be there. there. If that was a fear you had, because it was a fear I had, of like, wait, what's going to happen? <laughs> um, but yeah, all the major podcast listening platforms we are on make sure to subscribe that way you'll get notified every tuesday when we release our new episodes yes so before we get into our topic and this week's episode i want to spend some time talking about what's going on right now in texas and dallas specifically I'm I'm sure a lot of y'all, especially who are in Texas, have probably heard a lot of things that are going on. But currently, in the month of May this year, there were 41 murders. And there were three trans women murdered in three months. And just to get an idea, we haven't seen homicide numbers in Dallas at that rate since the 90s. And a lot of the, not necessarily why they're happening, but why things aren't being solved and investigated as much is because Dallas also has dwindled down to 13 homicide detectives. And just if you need a frame Mm. of reference, cities like Houston and San Antonio have 50 to 80. So Dallas being a huge fucking city, 13 homicide detectives. 13. That's insane. They're having to borrow from like the cold case unit because they need people to help solve homicides. And yeah, so that means the cold cases are being ignored. And just to put the three trans women of color that were murdered in Dallas in the month of May into perspective, last year, there were at least 26 known trans people who were murdered in all of the United States. And this is one month, three, just here in Dallas. And it doesn't seem like it's something that's going to be stopping anytime soon. There were, I think, two to three more in the last couple of years prior. This is not... Mm -hmm. You know, it seems to have been exacerbated in the month of May, but it's been happening. Yeah. And the the trans community has always been one that has been victims of violence at a staggering rate. Yeah. Um, A survey of U.S. transgendered people that was sent out in 2015 showed that 46% of respondents had been verbally harassed in the last year because they were transgendered. 9% had been physically attacked in the last year because they were trans. 47% had been sexually assaulted at some point in their lives, with 10% being in the last year. And for trans men and women of color, the numbers are a lot higher. 53% of black respondents had been sexually assaulted in their lifetime, and 13% in the last year. 
And also, 54% had experienced some kind of, like, intimate partner violence and Mm -hmm. domestic violence. And it's something that is not looked at as much as it should be. We have all these men and women dying in the streets, being murdered, being attacked because they're transgendered, because they're living their lives. Yeah. And especially June in the United States, and I think in the world is Pride Month. Mm -hmm. And this year in particular is really big because it's the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, which are seen to have kind of been the ignition source for the gay rights movement. Um, And that was a movement that was led by trans women of color. Mm -hmm. And the fact that 50 years later... All this is happening in Dallas, and Mm -hmm. things have gotten better, but in a lot of ways, they haven't. No, a lot of ways, they really haven't. This makes my stomach hurt so much, because I know it's happening around me where I am right now, and I also know that it's something that probably has always happened around me where I am. I just wasn't aware until now, and I just hate how much hate there is in this world. And how we continue to just have so much hate instead of love when I feel like rights movements are also about coming together and loving one another. Mm-hmm. And like, no one is telling you how to live your fucking life. Don't tell someone else how to live theirs. No. I just, it was very important for us to bring this up. You know, we're fully aware and I'm looking to see what I can do in the community, being here in Dallas, seeing how I can help out. I just, every time I watch the news, my heart breaks more and more. Yeah. There are so many things in your communities that you can do. I mean, on Sunday this weekend, I actually haven't told Brittany about this yet. On Sunday this week, a group of activists and supporters meet every Sunday across the street from a local church that's known for being full of hate, very full of bigotry um, against LGBTQ people. Yeah. And so what this group does is across the street, they set up basically like a church barbecue in counter or in protest of this church. And the community comes together, sings songs, just has a good time. Uh, So I'm going to be going and helping out with that this weekend. I'm excited. It'll be fun. Yeah, that'll be... I love how that's a very peaceful protest. It's like mm-hmm. a peaceful protest that's giving back to the people who are t- trying to take away. Mm-hmm. And it's the um, uh, leader of it. I cannot remember her name right now. But um, after this church started becoming a lot more vocally hatred against uh, gay men and women and just people of the LGBTQ community, um, she was like, well, fuck it. Why don't I start my own? And she got herself ordained. That's and awesome. So, like, technically this meeting is, it's a church meeting on Sundays across the street from this hate church. I and love it. I'm excited. You'll have to let me know how that goes, for sure. I will. But, and then I will, I'm sure in our, like, you know, this current news area, In the next few weeks, I'll give y'all updates because we're definitely in a public safety crisis here in Dallas. And there's a mayoral election this weekend, actually. And I'm just very interested to see what happens. And uh, because one of the candidates is very much about fixing this public safety crisis. He recognizes Mm -hmm. that it's actually a crisis and not just something that we need to sit around and let 
you know, let it fix itself. Because it won't. Yeah. Well, keeping on the train of things that are seriously fucked up, I'm going to go into our topic now for this week's episode. Yay! So, I bet you guys have been wondering why we haven't done this one yet, because it is a pretty big one, but we wanted to save it. This week is Couples Who Kill, which yeah. I think I think we're all kind of fascinated by Couples Who Kill, especially, you know, one of the most well-known, Bonnie and Clyde, which... yeah. Which neither of us did because they're boring. Um, it's literally everywhere already. And not that we haven't covered cases that are everywhere. It just, you know, that's not our style. You guys, you know, we robbing, pick other like things. The, going around the country, like robbing banks and stuff. Personal opinion, that doesn't interest me one bit. I'm mm-hmm, like, same. okay. It's like, yes, it's real, but it's so cliche. I'm like, ugh. Ooh, what are you going to do? Rob a bank? <laughs> well, you know... I mean, they did a lot more fucked up things than that, but that's, like, their, what they're mainly known for. That, and then, like, I don't know, in the movie, did they, like, drive into the Grand Canyon or something? No, that's definitely Thelma and Louise, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, also, spoiler alert, but the movie was made in the 90s. Go watch it. It's fantastic. Um, I... So... <laughs> You know, what's interesting about couples who kill is that most killers definitely keep to themselves and, you know, their crimes are their passions and they don't really want to share that with anyone else. And their passions are crime. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's rare to purposely murder someone with like a spouse or as a couple, Mm -hmm. but it's even rarer for serial killer couples to be a thing. Like there's not that many couples who go around killing together and get away with multiple murders it's actually kind of horrifying because if you think about it a single serial killer is horrifying enough add two people to that equation and like the the force the brute force and it's horrible it just really shows that there's someone out there for everyone (laughs) and i think it's kind of heartwarming i think it's not (laughs) i think a lot of these people have delusions of love and that's why they're doing this together. Or or maybe they're not even delusions of love. They actually are truly in love. And they're two peas in a real fucked up pod. Well, and it's something... I think one of the things that makes couples who kill together so fascinating is it's so cinematic. I mean, the two big things that America's obsessed with is violence and sex and this intertwines all of that and it's something you see so many movies based off of even ones that aren't specifically like true crime or murder focused but think of things like uh mr and mrs smith with brad pitt and angelina jolie Mm -hmm. um i mean just there's so many movies about couples killing together and that being a thing and it's i don't know i think it's horrifying, but super fucking interesting. Yeah. As preparation for this episode, I actually watched the movie called The Killers with Ashton Kutcher and Katherine Heigl, which oh, he, he's a I'm spy. I'm sorry. <laughs> I am so sorry that you watched that. I've actually I, seen it more than once. It's pretty bad. I agree. <laughs> I mean, I stand for Katherine Heigl. I love I mean, her. It's why I watched it. But God, some of... not No, not some the movies she's been in all of them except for that one with alexis bladell which still kind of sucked it was just a very basic typical rom-com but they're lesbians 
Catherine Heigl's movies suck. <laughs> oh, that poor, poor And Catherine. bless her heart, because she has the acting ability that she can do. She could play really great characters, but dear God, if I see another fucking Catherine Heigl movie that's like a rom-com, where she's like this overworked, stressed out person who, I don't know, kills people, or raises a baby with like the shitty neighbor next door, or like, <laughs> I don't know. It's fine. Like, you just literally has punching the ball gags with Josh Dumel. Like I'm just tired of it. <laughs> you're, you're literally just kind of shitting on all the movies I've been watching the last week, but that's okay. Um, yeah, I know <laughs> she actually. I totally agree. She deserves better. Um, I love, love, loved her in Grey's Anatomy. Even when her story got really fucking weird, I still loved her. So, um, but anyway, yeah. Um, I don't know how much research for this topic that was, <laughs> but um, okay. Um, well, so when it comes to couple who kill the way they partner together ranges from both of them doing the killing maybe one's just the accomplice and a lot of the times when they go to trial they play the blame game they start blaming oh this was him oh it was her it was all that person's fault and also when you do think about it there is in some of these couples there's domestic violence and where Mm -hmm. maybe one of the individuals felt forced to be involved in the killings and maybe they didn't really want to. So that's the topic we are going to cover today. But before we get to that, we're going to tell you about two different wines. Yes, we are. What wine did you pick? So the wine I chose today is the 2016 Carro from Yecla, Spain. Ooh, another Spanish wine. Yes, it's almost like I went to the Spanish wine section of the grocery store. <laughs> and just picked a lot of different wines. Well, they were all really interesting. Spanish and I wines wanted are to find... really good. Well, and I wanted to find ones that weren't typical, you know, like your Cab, your Zin, yeah. your Pinot Noir. I was like, let's try some new fun grapes. And Spain is drinking some fun grapes. They are absolutely drinking fun grapes, I agree. So this wine is actually a blend. It is 50% Monistrel. Syrah, 20% Merlot, and 10% Tempranillo. I don't even know what to expect. Me neither. So a little bit about um, these grapes and kind of where they're grown and all that. The vines grow in a limestone soil, which gets just 8 to 10 inches of rain a year. So not a lot at all. No. And Yakla is one of only a few wine regions in the world that remained unaffected by the phylloxera plague that weirdly we've mentioned three episodes in a row I know, we have. (laughs) Um, But the wine is said to just have this richness, depth, and these profound earthy flavors that will transport you to the arid, rugged, and tranquil terrain of Yakla, Spain. So you're going to feel like you're in Spain as you're sipping on this wine tonight? Oh my god, I hope so. (laughs) It is apparently unpretentious. Whatever the fuck that means. (laughs) It's a wine that you're just like, you're so cool. And it's like, oh my god, no I'm not, shut up. (laughs) Like, no, I'm just, I'm really very normal. This is, no, this is not special, okay? Um, And it's very juicy, and it apparently pairs well with most any flavorful dish that is served on a backyard deck, at a beach, or at a picnic. So if you want to eat it inside, or er, serve it with food you're eating inside, you're fucked. Uh, <laughs> it has to be drunk outside. It tastes better outside. I always think it's so interesting, this very specific foods that the winemakers will call out, um, that it pairs well with. 
And this one is grilled cheddar burgers with bacon, barbecue brisket or pulled pork, and pressed Cajun chicken sandwiches. All fit the bill. So if it's a Cajun chicken sandwich that hasn't been in a panini press, <laughs> tastes like shit with this. <laughs> if you put a slice of provolone on that bacon burger, you're fucked. <laughs> you mean, just totally messed it up. Although I will say I get... The difference, like the description of all of those foods are more, you know, they're meat heavy, they're grilled meats, they're, you know, hearty meals. Yeah. Like it's they're, not like they're fatty and juicy. Yeah. It's not like this is really good with salmon or tilapia, you know, the garbage fish. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently is something I've been told because I was eating a lot of tilapia and someone was like, you know, that's garbage fish, right? I was like, what? I like it. And now it's all I can think about when I look at it. I mean, to be fair, first off, tilapia is not very good. No, um, it really has just, no flavor, to be honest. No, it's just what you eat when you're poor and you're like, I just I I'm want fish. fish. I need to be fancy. Um, and you get which, shit fish. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I feel like a lot of fancy shit is shit. Like lobster. What do you think lobsters eat? Shit. <laughs> Shrimps. That fancy ass shrimp cocktail. They're eating fish shit all damn day. <laughs> why you, you think that's you fancy? gotta make that's sure and gross. take out that vein oh my god people that don't like i love you people but just take it out it's just literally out it's poop it's just a string of, of fish poop even <laughs> like not even like i mean it, there's not really preferable poop unless you're one of the people that has had that cat poop coffee thing oh my but, god which still scares me i mean i you've tried it what if i was like yes I, it's what i have in my pantry right now <laughs> I would probably maybe try a sip because obviously oh, it's not going to be like a cup of diarrhea. Like, <laughs> like obviously it has <laughs> coffee flavors and stuff. But you're literally so would, like. But I think you should be open to trying all kinds of foods because just because this is a flavor profile or ingredient that's not in your native culture doesn't mean that it's not going to be amazing. Well, your wine. Let's go back to pleasant topics. So I couldn't find any specific like, oh, it tastes like red berries and shit and all this. So <laughs> I have no idea what it's going to taste like. In fact, you are probably the one who has the best idea since you've had a Monastrell recently. Yeah. And that's this is 50% Monastrell. Well, and one of the things that you described was that it's juicy. And to me, mm -hmm. that made me think like probably very tannic and it's going to make you salivate. Yeah. Because that is one thing that I noticed throughout that episode when I did that Monastrell. It made me salivate so much, which was very interesting to me. And I didn't really notice it because I've never had that reaction really to wines. And you were saying that that happens to you a lot with yeah, red wine. Yeah, usually if I drink, most red wines make me salivate a lot and just make me sound, I don't know, spitty. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to whatever I'm about to taste, and maybe I'll hate it because I didn't just have grilled cheddar burgers with bacon, barbecue brisket or pulled pork, or a pressed Cajun chicken sandwich, <laughs> but I did have um, some microwaved uh, reheated Domino's pizza. Oh, so. <laughs> okay. Well, while you open your wine, I want to tell you about mine. Because I feel like you're going to be surprised, but also not surprised at all at what I picked. Okay, you ready for this? I guess. All right. So I picked the 2018 Chateau Pelaine Bordeaux Blanc. So it is a oh. white Bordeaux. I didn't know white Bordeaux existed. Yes, it definitely I, I understand why you think I would be both not surprised at all and very surprised. Because as you were saying it, I'm like, 
Okay, Chateau, whatever, Bordeaux, like, yeah, obviously. Brittany drinking French wine, what a shock! Yes. Ring the bells, alert the town. Oh, it's white, though. Okay. Okay. And so, on that note about how I do oftentimes pick French wines, I know I keep bringing them up, but it's because they're, like, paramount in the wine world. They are... Well, and you also love France and have been there multiple times. No, it's true, it's true. It's one of the most known areas for wine, And the most popular grape varietals from, like, Chardonnay to Merlot to Cabernet Sauvignon, they're all native to France. So, like, they really pioneered a lot of this winemaking, even though I did read something that said they got the idea from the Greeks. The Greeks were like, ooh, this land's, like, really great. They should grow some... Well, I mean, if you think about it, the Greeks were drinking wine. I mean, the Mesopotamia, even before the Greeks, was drinking wine. Oh, yeah. And this was back when France was Gaul and still very tribal, so... Yeah. Makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And in many years, France produces and also consumes more wine than any other country, which again, not a surprise, even though when you think about it, France is not as big as the United States, but they still are drinking and making a lot more than we are. And their production and their export of fine wines, it's, it's unmatched. So... Yes, I love French wines. Yes, I'm going to keep doing them. This one I'm really excited about because like you said, I also didn't know there was such thing as a white Bordeaux. Well, and I mean, it makes sense that you keep doing French wines. If I could find the Norwegian wine I have been searching for for years, I will do 10 episodes on that same bottle. (laughs) I won't, but I just really want to find my apple glug. I know, and we've found some of them, but none of them have been exactly what you remembered. I think at this point, I'm just going to have to go. Probably. I mean, that is go, your best go bet. Go to Norway. And bring and some back. mail a case back. Yeah. Um, a little bit about this wine. It is from the Malbrac Guéron Winery. So this is a blend of three different white grapes. The Simillon, which is there in France, it's 60%. Sauvignon Blanc, 30%. And Sauvignon Gris is 10% which is one I've mm. never heard of. That's like a combo of two very popular names. Um, yeah. This wine is 12.5% ABV, and it's supposed to be very crisp, medium-bodied, with a very clean finish. So it's going to be yellow in color with some green reflections. Uh, mm. The scent is supposed to be with very ripe fruit, citrus, and peach. And the palettes are very round, rich, with aromas of, again, citrus, pineapple, and peach. Apparently, it's going to be very peachy. And Apparently. it is perfect with seafood or appetizers. Any appetizer. <laughs> <laughs> mozzarella sticks, fried ravioli, those loaded potato skins from TGI Fridays. <laughs> These are All those perfect. are great. All the way to, like, you know, some nice, like, mussels and clams and, I don't know, bougie shit. So, anyway, I'm really excited to get into this wine. Uh, The bottle's, like, really pretty, and it uh, looks amazing. So, I'm going to go ahead and open it up. I already opened and poured my glass. Of course you did. Already poured yours. It's a nice, deep, ruby color there. It is. I think my liver is like, wait, no. (laughs) What are you doing? I'm not ready. Oh, okay. This is definitely a darker, like it is definitely yellow. Yeah, I I mean, it's like a Chardonnay yellow. It's very much a Chardonnay yellow. Which is interesting, you were describing mm-hmm. it, and I was thinking Pinot Grigio would be maybe what it sounds most similar to. Okay, Ooh, well. I'm just smelling it. Okay, well, um, we've definitely got to try these wines, so cheers. Yes, we do. 
Cheers. Wow. That, uh, that is not what I expected. What is it? Um, it's very, I mean, already my mouth is full of saliva. See so. what I mean? But the first taste on my tongue was this fruity in a way that was like almost sweet. Like it wasn't sweet. It was not sugary at all, but it was not, I don't know. It didn't have that like bitterness that you associate with like a cab or something. Very smooth, very quick palate. Yeah. So it's one that you drink it and then you swallow it and it doesn't linger for very long. Yeah. Yeah. Does it have like a bit of a sourness to it at the beginning? Yeah. And it it's making my tongue go, oh my God. Oh <laughs> <laughs> one day we're going to find out we're allergic to a type of wine and be like, in the episode, be like, um, so I feel like, oh no. Oh, no. Oh, my God. I wish you guys could have seen his face. No, but it does have some of that, like, (laughs) tongue-numbing quality. Not that I'm allergic to it. Although I am pretty sure I'm allergic to kiwis for the same reason. They make my mouth go, like, all fuzzy feeling, and my tongue goes numb, and I think I might be allergic to kiwis. Anyway. You may um, be. This one's very interesting. It has... The if you picture it, it's almost like the tannins are a knife. They're very intense but very quick. So it's one that I can definitely see going really well with fatty, meaty kind of. It sounds like a wine you need food with to yeah. really enjoy all the flavors. Yeah. So. Now I'm also craving like a big thick cheddar burger. I know. Ever since you've <laughs> said it, I haven't stopped thinking about it. I literally am just like, yes, I have none of those things right now, but I want it. But no, this is a very interesting wine. It's definitely not like any wine I've ever had before. Yeah. I have literally, while you've been talking, just been drinking this one because, oh my god, it's really good. Um, The peach and pineapple, very much there. As far as it being crisp, it is crisp, but then I'm I'm getting a bit more of the sweetness, like, from the peach flavor Mm -hmm. than I am this crisp. Like, there's no green apple going on here. Okay, it's more of a rounded kind of... It does remind me a lot of an unoaked Chardonnay, but not exactly because it doesn't have the Chardonnay grape in here. Did I like the unoaked Chard? Mm. You liked you liked the French Chard, but I do think you would really enjoy this. Mm. This is a perfect summer wine. I see myself drinking this as much as I drink rosé. <laughs> And where did you get it and how much? Oh, I got this one at Total Wine, which, by the way, if y'all have never been there, I think we've talked about it a little bit. It's wine heaven. It's like where I want to be buried. Yeah. I just, I love it so much. But it was only a $10 bottle. Really? Which is great because their French wines go up to like a few hundred. So Uh, this was a steal. Mine was from Central Market, which is kind of similar to Whole Foods. It's like the H-E-B version of Whole Foods. Um, And it was, I think, an $11 or $12 bottle. Not bad. Seriously, I think so many of our listeners would love this wine. It's just... I know. I I want a glass right now. It's not sweet. It's not sour. But it's also not too crisp and dry. It's very good. I'm I'm, I'm a huge fan. So, um, all right. Now we've got our wine. We've talked about the topic. What murder did you pick? What couple are you going to be telling me about today? So my case is one that might be quite familiar to some of our UK-based listeners. Uh, and maybe less familiar to our everyone else listeners. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, mine is the case of the Moors murders. I feel like I've heard that, but I have no idea what it is. Same. Before I got into it. Now I know a lot about it. But I hope so. Before I was like, ooh, I recognize that. Right. Um, but I didn't really know anything about. But it's fucked up. And the sources I used were the New York Times, The Independent, Express, and Wikipedia. And Express, like the Sunday Express, not like the clothing store. <laughs> I wish it was um, the clothing store. Like that one time when you used like an apartment review site. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Sometimes we find the weirdest fucking sources. The apartment has a luxury pool built over an Indian burial ground. What? <laughs> oh, no. So this case, I'm just going to hop right in. It's a fucking doozy. Okay. So in the 1960s. Ian Brady, who's a 27-year-old stock clerk with sharp features and a pompadour, and his girlfriend, Myra Hindley, who's a 23-year-old typist with dyed blonde hair, would go from relative obscurity to be the most hated couple in Britain. Ooh. Their crimes, which would become known as the Moore's murders, were some of the most gruesome and diabolical murders that have ever been seen in post-war Britain. Their first victim was 16-year-old Pauline Reed. She was a neighbor of Henley's who disappeared on her way to a dance in Manchester, England, on the 12th of July, 1963. That evening, Brady had told Henley that he wanted to commit his perfect murder. Oh. He told her to drive her van around the local area while he followed behind on his motorcycle when he spotted a likely victim he'd flash his headlight and that would be his signal to henley to stop the van and offer that person a ride oh my god so while driving down gorton lane brady saw a young girl walking towards them and signaled henley to stop but she didn't stop until they'd already passed the girl brady came alongside her on the motorbike and was like what the fuck why did you not stop and pick that girl up? And Hindley replied that she recognized the girl as Mary Ruck, who was a neighbor of her mother's, and was like, uh-uh, too close for comfort. Oh my god. Her. So around 8 p.m., they're continuing down Froxmer Street, and Brady spotted a girl wearing a pale blue coat and white high-heeled shoes walking away from them. Once again, he signals to Hindley to stop, and Hindley again recognized the girl as Pauline Reed, who is a friend of her younger sister, Maureen. Oh my god, so she just knows everyone that they're wa they're driving by. Pretty much. But this time, she didn't continue driving. She pulled over, Reed got into the van with Henley, and then Henley asked if she wouldn't mind helping search for an expensive glove that she'd lost in the Saddleworth Moor. Which, the Saddleworth Moor, it's a, um, it's like a peat bog, kind of a swampy field so area let me get this straight she picks mm -hmm. her up and she's like oh hey by the way on our way can you help me search for my lost glove yeah what the hell agreed like um i'd be like um i just you can let me out I, i'm in a hurry gotta go bye but this is unless they first, knew I mean, each it's other. your best friend's older sister and then i guess you feel really safe and this is scary and this also the 60s and reed had said that she wasn't really in any hurry and she agreed yeah and at the age of 16 pauline reed was older than marie ruck 
and Henley believed that there'd be a lot less of an outcry over the disappearance of a teenager than there would be of a child who was seven or eight. I'm thinking there's going to be an outcry for either of them, but just gut feeling I have. So when the van reached the moor, Henley stopped and Brady arrived shortly afterwards on his motorcycle. She introduced him to Reed as her boyfriend and said that he'd also come to help her find this missing glove. Henley claimed that Brady took Reed onto the moor while Henley waited in the van, and Brady returned alone after about 30 minutes and took Henley to the spot where Reed was laying dying. Her throat had been cut twice with a large knife. Oh my god. And the larger of the wounds was a four-inch-long incision across her voice box, and the collar of her coat had been pushed into this wound. Oh my god! Brady then told her to stay with Reed while he went and grabbed a shovel that he'd hidden nearby to bury the body. Henley noticed that Pauline's coat was undone and her clothes were in disarray, and she guessed that from the time he'd taken that Brady had probably sexually assaulted her. Brady's account, however, differed from Henley's. He claimed that Henley was not only there at the scene of the murder, but that she assisted him with the sexual assault of Pauline. After returning home from the moor in the van, they loaded the motorcycle in the back, and the two of them passed Reed's mother, Joan, who was accompanied by her son Paul, searching the streets for Pauline. Oh my god. We still don't know why they're doing this, right? Like, you haven't, we don't know why. I'm not, yeah, correct. Okay. They passed her mom and brother right after they had finished burying her body. Like, that is Mm -hmm. morbid and terrifying, and I'm sitting here feeling, like, nervous, and I feel like they were sitting in that car just feeling proud. Yeah. So, early in the evening, on November 23rd of 1963, Henley and Brady approached a 12-year-old, John Kilbride, at a market in Ashton-under-Line, and offered him a ride home on the pretext that his parents would be worried with him being out so late. They're like, hey, 12-year-old kid, it's really late. Do your parents know where where you are? Here, it's too late to walk home. Hop in, we'll give you a ride home. No. And they also induced him in with a the promise of a bottle of sherry. Um, and after that, Kilbride was like, hell yeah, I'll get in the car. Take me home. I get some alcohol. Brady told Kilbride that the sherry was at their house, and they'd just have to make a detour to their house to collect it. And on the way, he suggested they take another detour to search for a glove that he'd said Henley had lost in the moor. Okay, what is... Why? Why is this, like, their excuse? I hate it. I don't know, because I feel like it's a shitty one. I do, too. I'm like, come up with a better reason to get this person out in the moor. But when they reached the moor, Brady took Kilbride with him while Henley waited in the car. Brady sexually assaulted Kilbride and attempted to slit his throat with a six-inch serrated knife before fatally strangling him with a piece of string. Oh, my God. Which might have been a shoestring or something kind of thing. Yeah, it had to have been a thicker string. So, now on to 12-year-old Keith Bennett. Oh, I hate how they're all so young. Yeah. So, Keith Bennett vanished on his way to his grandmother's house in Longsight, Manchester, early on the evening of June 16th, 1964. So, it's been about seven months since they murdered Kilbride. Yeah. And this was just four days after Keith's 12th birthday. Oh. 
So Henley lured him into her mini pickup, which Brady was sitting in the back of, by asking for his help loading some boxes, after which she would drive him home. So she drove to a lay-by on Saddleworth Moor, just as she and Brady had previously arranged, and Brady went off with Bennett, again, supposedly looking for this lost glove. This, again, it's just working on so many people. This They, they must have been so convincing. Like, and, yeah. and just seemed like this very nice, nice woman. Um, I know they didn't always know when he was there. But yeah, I mean, she's this nice, young 20s woman asking for help for a lost glove. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Well, and these people are just kind and then taken advantage of. The victims, they're being kind, like, being like, oh, yeah, I'll help you. And then, no. So... As Brady is taking him to find this glove, Henley stays back to keep watch. And again, after about 30 minutes, he Brady comes back alone, carrying the shovel. And when Henley asks how he'd killed Bennett, Brady just said that he'd sexually assaulted the boy and strangled him with a piece of string. 30 minutes and he'd already buried the body? I know. Obviously, these are very shallow graves. Well, and it just... It's like he's not taking any time. He's just, like, killing to kill. Yeah. Sexually assaulting and then murdering. And then just, like, quickly dumping the body. And just being like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. So now to December 26th of 1964, day after Christmas, Boxing Day, Brady and Henley visit a local fairground to find another victim. And they notice 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey standing beside one of the rides. It became apparent to them that she was on her own, and so they approached her, and they deliberately dropped one of the shopping bags they were carrying while close to her, while next to her. Yeah. And they they dropped it, and they asked her if she'd help them carry some of their packages to the car, and then if she'd accompany them home and help them take the packages in. And so she was like, I mean, sure. Yeah, I'm 10. Okay. So she gets in the car. They take her to the house this time. And once inside the house, she was undressed, gagged, and forced to pose for photographs before being raped and killed, most likely strangled with this piece of string. Why? I'm really wondering why they introduced the photographs. I don't know. Like, it's the first time that they've done something that really is evidence of we were here and we did this. Yeah. I mean, I think at this point, they it's like they're convinced they're not going to get caught. Yeah. Because it's not like the first three, all this time and energy to conceal what they've done. They're really not doing that. No, and they're not they doing that. they still haven't been caught. Right. And so I think they're getting cocky. Um, That's what it sounds like. They're getting very cocky and they're taking home souvenirs in the form yeah. of a photograph. So Henley maintained that when all this was happening, she had actually gone to fill up a bath for Downey. And, she, you know, she filled up this bath and she comes back and that's when she sees that Downey's been killed. And Brady, on the other hand, would state that it was actually Henley who killed Downey and... The following morning, the two of them drove her body to the Saddleworth Moor, where she was buried naked with her clothes at her feet. This is bringing up so many questions because I really can't tell if he's trying to blame her and she's innocent or if she is trying to blame him and is playing like her own form of the victim. Yeah. 
So now to the evening of October 6th of 1965, a little over nine months after Downey's murder. Okay. Henley drove Brady to the Manchester Center Railway Station, where she waited outside the car while he selected their next victim. After a few minutes, Brady reappeared in the company of Edward Evans, and he introduced Edward to Henley, saying that Henley is his sister. Oh, After they'd driven back home and relaxed over a bottle of wine, Brady sent Henley to fetch her brother-in-law, 17-year-old David Smith, who was the husband of Henley's younger sister, Maureen, who was, again, Pauline's friend from earlier. Um, I'm getting scared. Okay. Yeah, so a little bit of background on Smith. The Henley family did not approve of Maureen's marriage to Smith. First off, they young as shit. Yeah, but this was second also off, the 60s. He, yeah, that's true. But second off, he had several criminal convictions, including actual bodily harm and housebreaking. Oh, I would not approve either. the first one, which was wounding with intent, happened when he was just 11. So he's a sketchy kid. Kind of a disturbed child, it sounds like, yeah. And throughout the previous year, Brady had been cultivating this friendship with Smith, who kind of became in awe of Brady, this older man who was paying him attention and, you know, building him into his protege, almost. And this was something that really bothered Henley, because she felt that this was compromising their safety. Yeah, it's bringing... She's like, you and I can keep a secret, you're bringing a third fucking person in. The more people involved in something, the more likely it is to be found out. Yeah. So Smith knocked on the door and was met by Brady, who'd asked if he'd come by for the miniature wine bottles. And then Brady led Smith into the kitchen and left him there, saying that, you know, he's going to go collect the wine. A few minutes later, Smith heard a scream, followed by Henley shouting loudly for him to come help. Oh my god. Smith enters the living room to find Brady repeatedly striking Evans with the flat side of an axe, and watched as he then throttled Evans with the length of an electrical cord and killed him. Oh my god! So right now, there's four people in the room. There is Smith, who just burst in from the kitchen after Henley was shouting at him to come help. There's Henley standing there. There's Brady standing over Evans, killing and strangling him. Oh my god. And so, Smith, the sister's husband, right? Yeah. Smith is just walking in like, what the actual fuck? Like, he's like, I just came here for wine, or like, I just came here to hang out, and now I'm seeing this happen? There are just but, so many. There are so many things happening right now. Thank you for outlining like who is on yeah. first because like that was getting really confusing. But oh my god, I'm like wondering what's going through Smith's head. Well, he decides to help them again. He is this I had kid a feeling. who just looks up to Brady, and so he's like, "Okay, let's get this body out of here. Let's do this." And I don't know what was said. You know, if they told him the story that Evans attacked Henley or I don't know. Yeah, what type of justification they said to... Or if they didn't need to justify anything. He probably was just like, okay, from what it sounds like, he's idolizing Brady. Yeah. So, unfortunately, Evans' body was too heavy for Smith to carry to the car on his own. And in the struggle, Brady had actually sprained his ankle. So they decide to wrap Evan's body in plastic sheeting and just put him in the spare bedroom. Oh, okay. Smith agreed to meet Brady, you know, the next day and they would 
dispose of Evan's body. But after Smith got home, he was not feeling good about this. He was like, uh, this shit's not okay. So he told Maureen, you know, his wife, Hinley's little sister, about what he'd seen. And she was like, okay, dude, you need to call the fucking police. Did she have any suspicions at this point that her missing friend... I don't think so. I think she had no idea. But, you know, he's saying, like, they murdered this guy. And she's like, okay, we're going to the fucking police. Uh, Yeah. And so they went to a nearby phone box and they brought a screwdriver and a knife in case Brady came to confront them in case he somehow knew and followed them. Smart thinking. And then they called the police. And this is what Smith told them. He said, Brady opened the door and he said in a very loud voice for him, do you want those miniatures? I nodded my head to say yes and he led me into the kitchen and he gave me three miniature bottles of spirits and said do you want the rest when i first walked into the house the door to the living room was closed ian went into the living room and i waited in the kitchen i waited about a minute or two and suddenly i hear a hell of a scream it sounded like a woman really high-pitched then the screams carried on one after another really loud then i heard myra shout dave help him very loud. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room and I saw a young lad. He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him, with his legs on either side of the young lad's legs. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his (gasps) hand. He was holding it above his head and he hit the lad on the left side of his head with the hatchet. I heard the blow. It was a terrible, hard blow. It sounded horrible. So he's fucking relaying everything to the police. In a lot of detail. Yeah. So early the next morning on the 7th of October, shortly after Smith's call, Superintendent Bob Talbot of the Cheshire Police arrived at the back door of the house, wearing a borrowed baker's overall to cover his uniform. And Talbot did identify himself to Henley as a police officer when she opened the door. Yeah. So I'm not sure what the point of, of the disguise was. Disguise. It. Yeah. I have no idea. Um, and he, but he told her he wanted to speak to her boyfriend. Henley led him into the living room where Brady was sitting up, writing a note to his boss, explaining that he's not going to be able to get to work because of his ankle injury. And Talbot explained that he was investigating just an act of violence that involved some guns that had taken place the earlier evening and, you know, to see if they'd been involved, if they'd seen anything, just kind of doing his search without trying to raise any kind of suspicion. I mean, absolutely. He's a cop. He knows what he's doing. So Hindley denied that there'd been any violence or anything, and she allowed the police to look around the house. When they came to the upstairs room that Evan's body was Oh my god, I forgot the body was still there. the police found the door locked and asked Brady for the key. At this point, Hindley, you know, she says that, oh, the key's at work. I can't get it. I mean, I guess I could go, but I can't. And the police were like, okay, well, we can drive you to work for you to pick up the key. And, you know, we can drive you back here. Yeah. And at that point, Brady told her to just hand the key over. When they got back to the living room, the police told Brady that, they discovered this body wrapped up in plastic and that he was being arrested on suspicion of murder. Yep. As he was getting dressed, he said, Eddie and I had a row and the, the situation just got out of hand. Hindley, on the other hand, was not arrested with Brady, but she still demanded to go with him to the police station and the police agreed with this. Hindley was questioned about the events surrounding Evan's death, but she refused to make any statement beyond claiming that it 
just had all been an accident. Right. And since police did not have any evidence that she was involved in the murder, they allowed her to go home on the condition that she come back the next day. Henley was free for four days after Brady's arrest, during which time she went to her employer and asked them to dismiss her so she could get unemployment benefit. And then while in the office where Brady worked, she found some papers belonging to him in an envelope. She said she didn't open. She just burned it in an ashtray. She believed that these were plans for bank robberies and had nothing to do with the murders, but would be incriminating nonetheless. So she's like, let's just get rid of these. Yeah, it would still be something that she didn't want the police to find. Yeah. On October 11th, however, she was charged as an accessory to the murder of Edward Evans and was taken into custody. And this arrest, these arrests happened a year after Parliament had abolished capital punishment in Britain. So the worst sentence they were up to receive was life imprisonment. Yeah. Also remember, at this point, this is just the murder of Edward Evans. Right. The police were That's all at. they know about at the moment, yeah. And that's about to quickly change. <laughs> I was hoping. So during the investigation, police found out that they were looking for a luggage of Brady's that they believe may hold some evidence in this murder. And they found the luggage that had been hidden at the train station that Evans had been picked up from. Yeah. And they looked inside. And once inside one of the suitcases, they found were nine pornographic photos taken of a young girl, mm. naked, with a scarf tied around her mouth, and also a 16-minute audio tape recording of her screaming and pleading for help. Oh my god, he recorded that? He recorded what that. What a sick this, bastard. Yeah, and remember this was Leslie Ann Downing, the girl they took to their home yeah. to do this to, who at this point is still missing and they have these photos and this video, but they don't know who this is. They just know that, holy shit, there's a lot more to this than just the murder of Evans. Yeah. Also, while police were searching the house, they found an old book, which the name John Kilbride had been written. And that made them suspicious that Brady and Henley had been involved with some of these unsolved disappearances of young people right. that had been happening. You know, already they have the photos in this recording of this girl. Yeah. They now have the name John Kilbride, who's someone they know is missing. Yeah. So they're like, these people are fucking involved. I mean, well, that's like this huge... Uh, they may as well have written, we did it, because that, yeah. the, his name? Come on. Also, a large collection of photographs was discovered at the house, many of which seem to be taken in Saddleworth Moor. Oh my god, they were taking photographs of everything. Yeah. So 150 officers went to search the moor, looking for locations that matched the photographs. Initially, the search was concentrated along the A628 highway, but a neighbor, 11-year-old Pat Hodges, who on several occasions had been taken to the moor by Brady and Henley. So yeah, they this 11-year-old girl who lives in the area yeah. went with the two of them multiple times and she was able to point out some of their favorite sites along the a635 road. they were just obsessed with this more yeah on october 16th police found an arm bone sticking out of the peat and they presumed that they'd found the body of john kilbride no but it was someone once else they started uncovering it oh my god they realized it was the body of leslie ann downing oh. her mother Anne 
had been on the moor watching as police were conducting their search because no. she her daughter's been missing for almost a year at this point. Yeah. But she wasn't present when her body was found. Oh, good. I thought you were saying she was going to be. But after the discovery of her daughter, she did listen to that 16-minute audio tape that police had and confirmed that that person screaming and pleading for help was her 10-year-old daughter. I can't believe she had to listen to that. No mother should ever have to listen to something like that. No. On the opposite side of the A635 from where Leslie Ann Downey's body had been found, five days later, they found the badly decomposed body of John Kilbride, who had to be identified by clothing. So, remember at this point, they have the three victims. Yeah. That they're like, okay, we got them, we found the bodies. So, the charges were brought against them. Brady and Henley both pleaded not guilty, and both of them were called to give evidence. Yeah. Brady over an eight-hour interrogation, and Henley for six. And although Brady admitted to hitting Evans with an axe, he did not admit to killing him. He argued that the pathologist had stated that Evans's death was accelerated by strangulation. And under cross-examination by the prosecuting counsel, all Brady would admit to was that I hit Evans with the axe, If he died from axe blows, I killed him. But you're saying he died from strangulation. I didn't do that. What a dick. What a fucking tool. And Henley denied any knowledge that the photographs taken in Saddleworth Moor had been taken near the graves of any of the victims. She's like, oh my god, no, we were just taking pictures in this field for no reason. No idea there were dead people there. No, that's too... She's obviously a great liar. Yeah, it sounds like it. And the 16-minute tape recording of Leslie and Downey, on which both the voices of Brady and Henley could be heard, was played in the court. Henley admitted that her attitude towards Downey was brusque and cruel, but claimed that it was only because she was afraid that someone might hear Downey screaming. Yeah. Henley claimed that when Downey was being undressed, she was downstairs, and... When the pornographic photos were taken, she was looking out the window. And when Meaning Downey was being strangled, no idea was she was running a bath. Yeah. No. Well, because no. that was happening, I was downstairs. And then when the pictures, I was just looking out this window like a normal person does, just staring out the window. Not hearing and this, like, when click, she's click, being murdered, click. Yeah. And when she's being murdered, I was just, I was running a bath. I was not involved in any of this. Yeah. She's a really bad liar because all of these are really bad lies. I know, which still blows my mind how she was so able to convince all these people to come find this glove with her. I mean, it might have been one of those things that, one, they're children, so they don't really know when they're being lied to as well. And two, it might have been a case of if someone thought it was a lie being like, there's no way this is a lie because that'd be the stupidest fucking lie ever. So, bitch probably telling the truth. But she fucking lying. I don't know. Yeah. So on May 6th, After having deliberated for a little over two hours, the jury found Brady guilty of all three murders and Hinley guilty of the murders of Downey and Evans and sentenced both of them to life in prison. But remember, there are still two victims that they don't know yet. They don't know. There was Pauline and who was the very first one? There was Pauline Reed, who was their very first victim, and Keith Bennett. So... Oh my god. In 1985, 20 years after all of this, Brady allegedly confessed to Fred Harrison, who was a journalist working for the Sunday People, that he'd also been responsible for the murders of Pauline and Keith. 
which was something that police suspected since both of the children lived in the same area as Brady and Henley and had disappeared around the same time as the other victims. And but their bodies... They were never able to get evidence. Their bodies had never been found, right? No. So, subsequent newspaper reports prompted the Greater Manchester Police to reopen this case. Yeah. And on the afternoon of July 1st, 1987, after more than a hundred days of searching, they found the body of Pauline Reed, buried three feet below the surface, just a hundred yards from where Leslie Ann Downey had been found. Oh my god. Brady had been cooperating with police for a while, and when news reached him that Pauline Reed's body had been found, he made a formal confession to her murder. Now, fast forward to 2002. Just hours before her death, Myra Henley handed over private documents to police that revealed her hatred of Ian Brady. She accused him of drugging, raping, and beating her during their whole time together. In graphic detail, she described this sadistic abuse by Brady, including violent rape, regular throttling, and threats of murder if she didn't comply. God damn, this is she just claimed, like what I was talking about in the topic earlier. I know. When, so when you were saying it, I was like, do you know what my case is about? Because it's li- like <laughs> because... literally everything I talked about has been in yeah. your case. Yeah. She claimed that Brady coerced her into the f- their first murder of Pauline by threatening her if she backed out. As we were driving home, he told me that if I'd showed any signs of backing out, I would have finished up in the same grade as Pauline Reed did. God. And I just said, I know. So Henley claimed that she began to shake and cry after reading a missing appeal by Pauline's parents. And when Brady saw her crying, he choked her. So she was a victim too. She said, he grabbed the paper off me, put the bolts on the front door in case Gran came back. Then he did the same for the back door and he began to strangle me. Before I lost consciousness... I heard him remind me of what he'd said after Pauline's murder, and that threat still stood. She referred to her relationship with him as being in his prison, and said that, I was so humiliated when he did all the things I've mentioned to me. I had no self-esteem or self-respect, whereas before I met him, and for the year I worked with him before he first made a date with me, I was an attractive, confident, and sociable teenager. I was never short on dates. She even claimed that Brady drugged her grandmother by putting Nembutal, which is was a popular sleeping drug in the 50s and 60s, in her tea and threatened to push her down the stairs to her death. Oh my god. So before these documents were released in 2002, in the 90s, Henley was claiming that she had only taken part in the killings because Brady had drugged her and was blackmailing her with pornographic pictures he'd taken of her and that he'd also threatened to kill her younger sister Maureen. She is not sitting there saying, I shouldn't be in jail. Da, 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 da. She's like, yeah. actually, by the way, these are the circumstances. Yeah. Well, in 2008, in a television documentary series on female serial killers, Henley's solicitor, because she died six years before prior at this yeah. point, she died in 02. Um, our solicitor, Andrew McCooney, reported that she had said to him, I ought to have been hanged. I deserved it. My crime was worse than Brady's because I enticed the children and they would have never entered the car without my role. Oh, God. I have always regarded myself as worse than Brady. 
Oh my god. Yeah. So. I just, sorry, yeah. I'm like not even knowing how to react to that because I have so many feelings like, is she like just putting self-blame? Does she have a valid point? I don't know. Well, and it's one of those that I, yeah, I don't know what to feel because she still did this. She, she still, was still did part it. of murdering these five children and also she was a victim herself. But that doesn't escape the blame, and she knows that. It, she knows it's that. It's a lot of feelings. She knows that, and I have this level of respect for her for being so honest eventually. Mm-hmm. It sounds like she was just a prisoner who's like, yep, I did it. I'm in jail. Yeah. So on November 15th of 2002, at the age of 60, Hinley died from bronchial pneumonia caused by heart disease. And then on May 15th of 2017... Brady died of restrictive pulmonary disease in the Ashford Hospital. Wow, he lived so long. This happened in the 60s, but he was only 20. That's right. And as of 2019, Keith Bennett's body remains undiscovered, although his family continues to this day to search the moor. Because they know it's somewhere there. They know it's somewhere there. Oh my god, how big is this moor? Because it seems like they have a specific area that they were in. It just, it breaks my heart that they have yet to locate his body. It's really big. I mean, it's part of one of the bigger national parks in the area. Mm -hmm. Which, and you know, like I was just saying, even if they did have that spot, maybe for some reason he was elsewhere. Well, and it also, I mean, it's a grassland, but that is the case of the Moore's murders, one of the most infamous killings in Britain, and one of the most horrifying fucking couples killings I have ever heard of. And we still don't know why Brady wanted to do this. No. Like, we have no idea. He never was like, oh, you know, I was just feeling an inkling for some killing. Like, wh- why did he do this? No. He was a fucked up dude. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you can ask that about a lot of people. Like, why did you do this? I know. Why didn't you sit down and have a stick of gum instead? Literally always just have a stick of gum. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, I guess I will go ahead and jump into my case now. So the case I picked is the Lonely Hearts Killers. Okay. I definitely have heard that name, at least. It's the same thing, where it's like you heard the name, but you don't know the details. Trust me. Yeah. The sources I used, History, Wikipedia, Time, Ranker, and Murderpedia. So this guy... Raymond Martinez Fernandez was born on December 17, 1914 in Hawaii to a Spanish family. Shortly after, they moved from Hawaii to Connecticut, which I feel like is like a major downgrade. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Connecticut's nice, but like... It's not Hawaii. Hawaii. Um, also, that's really far. So when he was an adult, he moved to Spain. Um, again, he was born to a Spanish family, so he did have dual citizenship. And he married a woman there, had four children, all of whom he ended up abandoning later in his life. Oh, so he's just an all-around great guy. Oh, totally. So after he served in Spain's Merchant Marine and then the British intelligence during World War II, he decided to Mm -hmm. seek work. Shortly after boarding a ship bound for the United States, a steel hatch fell on him, fractured his skull, and injured his frontal lobe. Oh. Yeah, you just caught on. That's where this one's You going. just caught on yeah. right now. So this serious head injury left him bald in that spot with serious headaches and damage that definitely affected his social and sexual behaviors. 
Yeah. After this, he became a petty criminal and he wore a cheap black toupee to cover up his baldness. He ended up serving some time in the 40s for his petty theft. And while he was in jail, he learned about voodoo and the occult from a cellmate. And he literally just like latched onto this. Like this was his thing. He was all into the voodoo and the occult. I mean, I can't knock someone. I mean, it's... It's definitely a religion for many people. It is. I don't know. I Because I feel like a lot of people, you hear like, oh, he, you know, started believing in voodoo. And people are like, okay, so he crazy. And it's like, okay, no, you're being a twat. Okay, Fernandez did not necessarily have some pretty good intentions with uh, what he wanted to do with his voodoo learnings. He believed that through voodoo, he could gain mastery over women, turn them into his sex slaves. And because of this, he began writing dozens of letters to wanted ads posted by lonely single women. Oh, 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 I think I do know this. First off, oh my god. I feel like it's such a weird age that I grew up in, in that the idea of looking for love and the lonely heart section on newspaper is weird okay but literally and yet, it's i also the grew same. up in the like craigslist personals era no, no, no. where i'm like oh that's not that crazy you know you say all of that and literally you look at what people are doing on tinder and bumble and it is the same oh i know thing. it's the same it's the same thing it's just on your phone versus on a newspaper yeah. but it's just i don't know it's weird i also don't know what you do with newspapers anymore i read all my media online So, Fernandez's MO was that he was going to woo women, gain their trust, and then he's going to rob them and completely disappear. I mean, that's fucked up, but just judging by, you know, the phrase Lonely Hearts Killer, mm, probably does a little worse than that. Yep. So, in 1946, Fernandez found his first mark in the Lonely Hearts Club, and he dated an older woman until he gained her trust and he looted her bank account. And then the next year, he took the latest in his mini line of victims over to Spain, where she turned up dead in a hotel room. Oh. Fernandez's scheme was working really well for him, until one victim, Martha Beck. So, Martha Beck was born Martha Jewel Seabrook on May 6, 1920, in Milton, Florida. And allegedly due to a glandular problem that she had, which at the time was the common explanation for any type of obesity, she was very overweight and underwent puberty prematurely. Oh. She claimed to have been raped by her brother when she was growing up, and she said that she told her mom, and her mom beat her, claiming that she was responsible for this. So the fuck? she clearly did not have a healthy upbringing by any means. No. Um, after Martha finished school, she studied nursing, but she had some trouble finding a job because she was overweight. Because literally, back in the day, was just as judgy as it is now. I know, I was like, I mean, I, that happens today. It's so fucked a up. A thousand percent. It's- and not even, not that this is okay, but not even in the like, oh, sorry, you're too ugly to work at Aeropostale, which happens a fucking lot and is disgusting. But oh, also- yeah literally just like oh no we don't hire fat people at the desk job obviously not gonna say that obviously oh i'm sorry we have more qualified people so she initially became an undertaker's assistant and prepared female bodies for burial she then quit that job moved to california 
So like complete opposite side of the country. And she worked in an army hospital as a nurse. While she was there in California, she spent many nights frequenting bars, picking up soldiers, and looking for love. She was trying to find a serious commitment. Yeah. Through this, she ended up getting pregnant. And she tried to convince the father to marry her, but he refused. When he found out she was pregnant, he tried to jump in the California Bay and commit suicide, but he failed at that. Um, and she never saw him again. So, like, literally not... What? <laughs> not only was he like, nope, don't care. He was like, oh... I'm going to end like, my life. I'd rather kill myself than have a child with you. Yeah. Um. So she's single. She's pregnant. It's the 40s. She moves back to Florida. Her daughter was born yeah. in 1944, and she named her Willa Dean. And she told people that the father was a serviceman. She had married, and she claimed that he had been killed in the Pacific campaign. And so the town, like, mourned with her, you know... Uh, they even published okay. a, a story in the local paper, and and I get it. I mean, I get it. I get it. I, I would probably do the exact the same 40s. thing in the forties. She never saw this guy again. Like he clearly wanted nothing to do with her, and she worked at the army hospital. Like, yeah, I would have said the yeah. same thing. And who the fuck's gonna be able to fact check you? It's the forties, exactly. Like, yeah. Oh no, exactly. Same. So shortly after her daughter was born, she actually got pregnant again by a Pensacola bus driver named Alfred Beck. They married quickly because she had gotten pregnant, and apparently that's what you're supposed to do in the 40s, and it didn't last. They got a divorce just six months after, and she gave birth to her son, Anthony. Oh, so they got divorced before she even gave birth. Yep. So, at this point in her life, she's unemployed, and she's a single mother of two young children, and she just decided to escape into a fantasy world. She would buy romance magazines and novels. She would watch romantic movies. And her life is hell, and she's doing everything she can to escape it. In 1946, she did end up finding a job at the Pensacola Hospital for Children. And in 1947, she placed a Lonely Hearts ad. And her first letter came from Ray Fernandez, who lived in Brooklyn. Oh, shit. No, wait. She's in Florida. She's in Florida. He's in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. They have some really good, like, newspaper supply chain going on. It's a big network. She gets this letter from Fernandez, and she's carrying it with her everywhere. She would read Aww. it every day, read it every opportunity she had. She just, she couldn't believe how well he wrote and expressed himself. She also felt that, oh my god, like, someone's interested in me. And she didn't have yeah. the best track record for that, so... Again, I'm not faulting her for for this portion. No. Um, She immediately... I mean, we've all literally gotten that text message or that, I don't know, message or letter or whatever from someone that we just literally just read over and over. That we say if it's been a few weeks and you're like, I'm just going to read it again. Yeah. So she immediately bought some really expensive stationery and she started a two-week correspondence that included dozens of letters and an exchange of photographs between the two of them. Fernandez responded to her note with intention of conning her, but after they got to know each other, he started to really like her, and they started to fall in love. Oh god, I just remembered what our topic was. I was enjoying this. I know. Um, yeah. God damn it. Just a little uh, side note. Maybe don't, like, feel too bad for her, but okay. So... After a few letters back and forth, Fernandez performed this necessary step of asking Martha for a lock of her hair. What he planned to do with her hair was perform a voodoo ritual, 
and he believed it would make Martha unable to resist his sexual charms. When Martha got this request, she was actually thrilled because she was like, oh my god, oh my god, this has never happened before, this dude wants a lock of my hair, literally. Yeah, it's never happened before because it's weird. <laughs> literally, if someone asked me that, I'd be like, <laughs> your hair, lady. literally, no. I'm dialing 911 in my pocket right now, you should probably run away. <laughs> okay, but see, nowadays, they would be like, hey, um... So you'd mentioned how, like, in, like, 23andMe and that kind of stuff you are, um, that you're really interested, but you haven't done it yet. I'm actually friends with my buddy, John. He works at the lab for that company. If you send me, like, a lock of your hair, I can... He can run the reports and everything for you. I mean, still probably say no, but I feel like you have to update it. Okay, um, still... Definitely say no. Um, so, listeners, if someone... You're mailing um, people tubes of your spit. <laughs> okay, but you're mailing it to a business. If you have, like, a friend... There is a male person who opens that and is like, there's a spit there. You know there is. I am just saying, if you have a date request a portion of your DNA, I'm gonna think you should say no. I mean, same. Unless, like, I don't know, he's being... If that's just their way of saying, hey, do you want to hook up? Hey, do you want to, I don't know, share DNA? Oh my god, you're so gross. Okay, so I'm gonna... <laughs> okay, I'm gross. You're... No, your case is gross. Oh my god. So Martha generously chopped off a piece of her hair, sprayed it with her perfume, and sent it to Fernandez. So Fernandez ended up visiting Martha and stayed for a short time. After he left, she told everyone that they were going to get married. He returned to New York City while she was making preparations in Florida where she lived. Mm -hmm. She wanted to be closer to him. And when she was abruptly fired from her job, she packed up everything and arrived on his doorstep in New York. Well, that's one way to do that. Fernandez said that she could stay if she got rid of her two children. No. Um... She promptly abandoned them at the Salvation Army. Oh, my God. Yeah, I Um... I told you. Don't feel sorry for her. I, um, wow. Okay. Yeah. And because of this, like, Fernandez is really enjoying that she's catering to every whim. Yeah. He thinks, like, his spell obviously works. Obviously. What kind of mother is going to be like, this guy that she's known through letters, he says, abandon your kids. And she's like, okie dokie, which Salvation Army? This one's closer, but this one's next to a McDonald's. So, choices. I know. Um... Literally, when he found out that she left her children, he thought this was a sign of unconditional love. It's a sign of something. It's a sign of something. And it's not good. So with the kids gone, Fernandez decided to open up to Martha. And he told her all about his Lonely Heart letters and what he was doing. He told her about... She was like, yes, queen, rob them hoes. (laughs) He told her about the dozens of women he deceived and robbed, his wife in Spain, and a lot of other women he had convinced to marry him before he robbed them. And Martha, who was very much already committed to Fernandez, she realized there was no turning back. He was her man. She was his woman. And so Martha saw the situation as it was her duty to help him. And together, they made plans for the next victim. She was totally on board. Um, In a weird way, it's almost endearing. I don't know. It, I think it's one of those things that why like couples who kill is so interesting and weird and fucked up. Because it's like... Well, it's like literally these two sick fucks found love. 
in one another. Yeah. And this is what I said earlier. It's like they're two peas in a super fucked up pod. Yeah. And it, because I feel like, you know, two people in love, you're like, oh my God, that's awesome. Two people like finding passions they share together. That's great. Oh, the passion is like, you know, fucking murdering people. Well, that's not great. That's not good at all. No. But it's it's weird. It It is. I feel like I could see this being a very dark, like, instead of a rom-com, like a rom-drom. Oh, there are absolutely movies created from this case. I think one is, like, The Honeymoon Killers or something like that. Obviously, you, you can tell so far, like, this influenced a ton of things. Martha and Fernandez placed a series of ads in romance magazines, and they officially, like, joined the Lonely Hearts Club. And at the time, this club was designed for single people throughout the United States, and it gave them a place to connect and hopefully fall in love. So that's why there was this, like, Florida to New York connection. It was a whole United States club. And... The two of them, they took advantage of this, and they used these ads and letters to lure in victims who they would rob and then eventually kill. So as they're looking through the ads, poring over photographs of widows and lonely hearts, they settled on one person, Esther Hinn, in southern Pennsylvania. Fernandez and Martha traveled down to Pennsylvania, where they met with Miss Hinn, and Martha at this time was posing as Fernandez's sister-in-law. So within the week of February 28, 1948, Esther and Fernandez were married in a brief ceremony in the county clerk's office in Fairfax, Virginia. So super quick. Yeah. The newlyweds, along with Martha, returned to the apartment. Are they just like, Martha, can you go? We're going to have like newlywed sex. (laughs) And she's like, I want to watch. Um, Okay, I'll get into that a little bit later. So hold that thought. So Hen later told reporters that... For the first four days, Fernandez was really polite, very loving, but then he started to give her tongue lashings when she wouldn't sign over her insurance policy and her teacher's pension. So he's pissed. Tongue lashings? Like yelling at her? (laughs) Yes, he would yell at her. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because he's pissed because he just wants to rob her. And she is like, no, I'm not signing this shit over to you. And so like at that point, things went downhill and... Hen began to hear stories about he went to Spain with a woman and she died. And shortly after, she left her apartment, minus her car and hundreds of dollars that he had stolen from her. But she was out. She was like, nope, that's fine. Take the car. Take my money. I'm gone. Yeah. So over the next two years, Martha posed as Fernandez's sister. And he would seduce older women before stealing from them. So this was the scheme that they had together. Yeah. Their victims, feeling more secure knowing that there was a woman in the house, it was a sister, they were like, okay. They often agreed to stay with them. Like, they didn't feel threatened. And this is why their scheme worked so well. Because it was this brother-sister duo, he felt safe and caring and loving and, you know, family and all that. So in addition to playing the role of the sister... Martha also convinced some of the victims that she lived alone and that her brother was just a guest. And so sometimes it was played that the place was hers. Sometimes it was played that the place was his. Okay. However, Martha was really jealous. 
And she would go to very great lengths to make sure that Fernandez and his intended, whoever the victim was, never consummated their relationship. When he did have sex with a woman, Martha would subject Fernandez and the woman to her very violent temper. This is partially what led to their schemes turning into murder in 1949. Oh. So Janet Fay was 66 years old. I, I just realized they hadn't really no. murdered no. yet. I mean, there's just the one mystery dead person in Spain. Yeah. Other than that, they're just conning women and stealing their money. Mm. Janet Fay came along. She was 66 years old, and she had a habit of writing letters to Lonely Hearts Clubs, despite all of her friends warning her that this was not a good idea. As she continued, after a period of several weeks in which Fernandez persuaded Janet that his aims were very honorable, he wanted to be with her, they ended up making arrangements for him to come to Albany just before New Year's Day. So on December 30th, 1948, Martha and Fernandez arrived in downtown Albany and checked into a hotel as Mr. and Mrs. Fernandez. So like literally not trying to hide that too much. Um, the next day, Fernandez showed up at Janet's door carrying a bouquet of flowers, and the two of them spent the day together getting acquainted and discussing religious matters, and shortly thereafter, Janet and Fernandez became engaged. Oh, well, there you go. And by shortly thereafter, I mean really shortly thereafter, because that was December 30th, and in the first week in January 1949, Janet made the rounds of the Albany banks, cleaning out her bank accounts, accumulating over $6,000 in cash and checks. As soon as she completed all of these errands, Fernandez convinced her to leave Albany and stay at his Long Island apartment, because that's where he lived. So they're both in New York, Mm -hmm. but far apart. Yeah. When Martha caught Janet in bed with Fernandez, she smashed Janet's head with a hammer in a murderous rage. However, her multiple blows did not kill Janet, and Fernandez then garroted and strangled Faye using a scarf as a tourniquet around her neck. Oh my god. The very next day, they bought a large trunk and dumped the body inside. Then... They drove over to Fernandez's sister's house, where they convinced her to store the trunk in her basement for the time. She had no idea what was in the trunk. Then, Raymond covered the grave that he dug in the basement with cement. So literally, dug a grave in the basement, threw the body in, covered it with cement. Like, things Uh, literally just took such a dark twist. Okay. So for the next week, they cashed Janet's checks and typed letters to her family saying things like, I'm excited. I'm having the time of my life. I've never felt this happy before. Soon I'm going to be Miss Martin. Which, side note, Fernandez went as Charles Martin when he was conning these women. He did not use his name. of course not. So she's also saying that the two of them are going to go to Florida. And Fernandez and Martha sign these letters with Janet L. Fay, and they're just basically, obviously, putting together this story where her disappearance is not going to seem alarming. Yeah. However, in their haste, they made a big mistake. Janet did not own a typewriter, and she could not type. So her family recognized that and immediately notified the police. Oh. When that happened, Fernandez and Martha fled. Yeah. So later that year, still 1949, Martha and Fernandez traveled to Byron Center Road in Wyoming Township, Michigan. So they 
you know, they left New York, they went to Michigan, and they were in a suburb of Grand Rapids. Okay. This is where they met and stayed with Delphine Downing, who was a young widow with a two-year-old, Rennell. When they met okay. in January 1949, Delphine was really impressed with, uh, quote-unquote, Charles, and she felt like she had a future with him. She liked his courteous manner and how considerate he was towards her daughter, Raynell. And before the month was out, he was having sex with Delphine. And this development was sending Martha into a rage. She yeah. was livid. So Delphine was a bit suspicious of this whole brother-sister thing. However, yeah. she did allow them to move into her home. But she would not marry Fernandez immediately and pride him act. Provide him access to her funds. People were so... Like, I literally... Can you imagine talking to a friend and then being like, Okay, so I met this guy on Tinder. Um, He's really sweet. We just, like, click. And so he and his sister are moving in. We I met him yesterday, yes. You'd be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I know. But apparently in the 40s, that was just like, yes, queen, get that D, get married. they moved co-wickly, which was why this con worked so well, and he was able to marry a ton of women and steal their money. He wasn't wasting years of his life, it was weeks. So on February 28th, Delphine got really agitated after seeing Fernandez without his toupee. She had no idea he was wearing a toupee. She had no idea he had the balding. And to rectify the situation, Fernandez gave her sleeping pills to calm her down. Um, no. no. I disagree heavily. Uh, same. So Delphine's daughter, Raynell, witnessed her mom being like, you know, this resulting stupor that she was in. And she got really upset. She was two. She started to cry. And Martha got really pissed that this kid is crying. Martha is panicking. She's in a rage because she's already pissed at Fernandez. Like, he's sleeping with this woman. And now this is happening. And so, yeah. in this rage, Martha chokes Raynell. The two-year-old? But it didn't kill her. Okay, good. Okay. Fernandez thought in this moment that Delphine would be really suspicious if she came to and saw her bruised daughter. So Fernandez shot Delphine with a handgun that belonged to her dead husband. Oh. He wrapped the pistol in a blanket, placed the muzzle against her head, and he pulled the trigger, killing her instantly. My God. Raynell had come to and watched the entire incident from a few feet away. Oh, oh God. So Fernandez and Martha wrapped Delphine up in the sheets and carried her to the basement. Is Raynell just chilling this whole time? She's upstairs. Just traumatized? Just sitting? Yeah, yeah. They dug a large hole and dumped the body in, and then Fernandez covered the grave with cement while Martha was cleaning up the murder scene. The two of them then stayed for a couple days in the Downing's house, planning how they were going to escape. Yeah. Meanwhile, Raynell is crying constantly, and she's refusing to eat. Yeah. So Martha and Fernandez are talking about what should be done with this little girl, but they, they could not agree on what to do. And ultimately, yeah. Fernandez just told Martha to get rid of her. <laughs> so Martha, again, is enraged at Raynell's crying and ends up drowning her in a basin of water. Mm. 
They buried her next to her mom in the basement. At this time, the neighbors are starting to become a little bit suspicious because the Downings are gone. And this led to the police to arrive at the front door on March 1st, 1949 and arrest Martha and Fernandez. The police officers at the time, they knock on the door and they're wanting to search the home. Fernandez is like, sure, come on in, search. Anticipating that they're not going to find anything. They found the makeshift grave in the basement. Martha and Fernandez quickly confessed, and they actually signed a 73-page confession. Oh, my God. Because they felt that their lives were safe, because at this time, Michigan was a non-capital punishment state. However, they did not count on being extradited to New York, where the electric chair was an option, where the murder of... Janet happened. Yeah. So the two of them were denying the 17 murders that were being attributed to them. 17? There were a lot of murders that there's not a lot of information on. So, yes, 17 murders are being attributed to them, and they're denying it. At this time, Fernandez even tried to retract his original confession, like that 73-page statement that they signed. And he said that he only did that to protect Martha. So this is like the opposite of what happened in your case. He's saying like, I didn't, I didn't really do it. I was, I was just trying to protect her, even though this is totally him dogging her, but it's not as brutal as yours was. At the very last minute during their trial, they attempted an insanity defense, but they were unable to convince the jury. The jury's like, no, they were convicted of Janet's murder which ended up being the only murder they were tried for, not Delphine and her daughter, Ranel. Really? And they were sentenced to death for Janet's murder. I mean, I get it in that there's no outcome that could top that in, like, the court's eyes and thing, but still. I know, I totally agree. And it was definitely known that they committed the other two murders, and they were suspected of committing up to 20 between, like, yeah. their spree that started in 1947 and ended in 1949, but they were only convicted of the one. And they both died in the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison in New York in 1951. This was back in the day when, when you were put on death row. It happened very quickly. So, despite all of the tumultuous arguments that the two of them had and all of the relationship problems that you could only imagine ensued with what they were doing. They often profess their love for each other. And this is very much demonstrated in their last words. Fernandez's last words were, I want to shout it out. I love Martha. What did the public know about love? And Martha's last words were, My story is a love story, but only those tortured by love can know what I mean. I am not unfeeling, Mm. stupid, or moronic. I am a woman who had a great love and always will have it. Imprisonment in the death house has only strengthened my feeling for Raymond. Yeah. Yeah, that's a no from me, brah. Same. I've definitely felt, I guess, what, tortured by love or whatever her phrase was. Um, yeah, uh, no. You don't drop your kids off at the fucking Goodwill and just start murdering women because you're in love. That's not how that shit works. You need to rethink your life and your decisions, honey. So that is the case of the Lonely Hearts Killers. 
Okay. Who I feel like very much embody this couples who kill theme. Yeah. So. Um, okay. So, postmortem? Let's do it. All right. I'm going to make you talk first. Well, I actually feel quite challenged in this one because, well, like I was just saying, mine very much is the epitome of the topic. However, I also yeah. picked the topic. But True. what they were doing, just it just built. And like their, their crazy love for one another and how they were obviously... I mean, as we know, Fernandez was hit on the head. He, he had yeah. an injury that was affecting the way he was living. And Martha was letting her life of rejection really build into the core of who she was. And so when this one man loved her, she'd do anything for him. And so it's, mine is a tragic story in so many facets, because not only is their love story really tragic and just like really sad, they victimized so many women not only like the ones that they robbed, but then the ones that they killed. And the fact that we don't really know how many women they did kill, it makes it really hard. And with yours, it's a story of domestic violence and a really violent man who is able to convince his spouse to become a part of these killings he wanted to do. And they happen to be of children. And Mm -hmm. that adds this other level of intensity to, to this topic. So as you can see, this, this is why I'm feeling like very challenged at the moment as to yeah. which I think was the more intense case. Yeah. I mean, in yours, like in my case, we don't have much of a why to it. And in yours, we do. But it's so tragic and unsatisfactory of a reason that, I mean, that it, it sucks. I know. I will say... I think I have to go with mine just because of how much victimization went on and how, you know, the kids, they were all victims. Uh, how she was, on one hand, contributing so heavily to these murders and being such an integral part in it and admitting to herself that this would not have been able to happen without me. He would not have been able to lure these children without me. Yeah. And I did it. I mean... That is a very heartbreaking (sighs) statement. And I will say, I think I agree with you. And for me, it's... My heartstrings are being pulled more by the fact that they were so young. And while I will not say a a young life is more valuable than an old life, because it's all life. But when you think of the aspect of these children who were killed were so young that they literally barely got life that adds this Mm -hmm. volume of of intensity to the case where it's just like they were such innocent children who were conned into something and while mine were older women who were still innocently conned into something they had a little bit more life experience to yeah they had more opportunity they had more opportunity to not only live but also to try to see the other sides and like get out of this situation they were in like delphine had her red flags like she was like oh this brother sister duo is kind of weird but when you're talking about innocent children 
they don't know any better. They, yeah, they have no idea what's they going look on. At, they have no way to mentally prepare. Exactly. Things. They look at adults as their superior. And while children are often taught, you know, stranger danger, there's still that level of like, oh, this is an adult and, and they know. Yeah. I'll help them. I'll, I'll save them. This adult needs my help. Mm-hmm. And that's also like them getting to be the hero. And so anyway, yeah. be- because of all of that, I think we both brought like super intense cases to this. Um, I, yeah. I do think yours, because of the children, tops out as the more intense case. Well, um, next time you'll be picking the topic yep. again, which I'm down for. You've picked some amazing topics the last few episodes um i feel like i'm just like going really dark and really deep and i mean i same and it it gives me the opportunity to go dark and deep with my cases well and i will say killer couples is one i've been like i said earlier i've been wanting to do this for a Mm -hmm. while but i just felt like i needed to wait until it felt right it's interesting i think that we did like couples who like one murders the other a long time before we did couples who kill together yeah because again i think it has to do with what i talked about earlier that normally you would think of when someone is a murderer they kind of keep that to themselves yeah it's not something you you trust with another person well it's not something you trust another person and also again it's instinct it goes to that bad people look and feel like bad people so someone who's a serial killer is not gonna have someone who loves them unless it's you know maybe a parental relationship which is kind of like well you can't do anything about that but like that you know this this horrible monster person you know they're they're not gonna have a spouse or they're not gonna have a significant other that loves them in that way that knows who they are because they're these bad people and it's like "Mm, that's not always the case not at all well with that thank y'all so much for tuning in for listening to this episode if you liked it make sure to rate and review us on apple Podcasts. give us those five stars let us know what you liked and yeah also like and follow us on social we're on pretty much everything instagram facebook twitter check us out um well thank you guys for listening this has been a really yes thank you so interesting much. episode of a blood and wine and yeah so with that we're signing off xoxo bye you guys bye, bye.